our scripture today takes us to the suburbs, essentially, of Jerusalem, where currently 20 or so members of Westminster and 20 others from the Jewish community today are still enjoying their, their trip to Israel. So we hold uh, Larry and all of them in our prayers. We've heard that they've arrived well, and otherwise we have not heard anything else, so we'll assume that no news is good news, but they're having a great experience. So uh, as we listen to this text, maybe we can also envision them breathing the very air and walking this very ground. Uh, let us walk it together uh, as we listen. Now on the same day, that same day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood, and they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered them, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? And he asked them, What things? And they replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. And moreover, some of the women in our group astounded us. For they were at the tomb this morning early, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and he blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and then he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? And that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and their companions gathered together. And they were saying, the Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road 
and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord God, it is often remarked that children say the darndest things, but it's also true that they hear so well. They listen. They notice. And we hope that we can be like children too and hear and listen and notice what you would have to say to us. And that the meditations of our hearts as they mingle with the words of my mouth uh, would produce and lead to the kind of life and the lives that you would have us live. In Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. So you will infer correctly from the title of my sermon today that I would like to preach on the resurrection too. But as I prepared this sermon, it turns out I found out that that desire, as earnest as it was, was a bit misguided. In the first place, it was based on some faulty memory. I've been an associate pastor here for around 11 years, and in that role and in that time, I've preached a lot of sermons on Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and the longest night. Services that tend to be, with one exception through the years, fairly somber and serious. Services that tend to hone in on the death and the suffering on the cross. Services that echo the refrain, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And not so much, he is not here, he is risen. And so I noticed a few weeks ago when Larry was preaching the Easter Sunday service, I had a little pulpit envy. I, I wanted to preach resurrection too. But lo and behold, I actually have preached it before. <laughs> that I thought, oh, this will be the first time I get to preach resurrection. But twice in the last three years, I know I have preached sermons on resurrection texts. Apparently those sermons were eminently forgettable, (laughs) even to the one preaching them. But in wanting to preach the resurrection again today, I've come to realize that it's not just faulty memory that I have that makes me want to do this, but also an ongoing desire to draw near again to this miraculous moment in the faith of the church which I sincerely believe and yet long to encounter anew. And I dare say that I am not alone in this, that that you and many others in the faith who are so well acquainted with the story of the resurrection nonetheless are drawn to hear it in such a way that it kindles in your hearts the burning that the disciples described something that is vivid and real to the heartbeat of this life, not just some promise about the life that is to come or some story from many years ago. It seems, as this text indicates, that we who are very close to the story of resurrection, who are best positioned to experience its joy, still find ourselves sometimes missing out. 
Did you notice that the disciples, when they walked that road to Emmaus, were talking to each other and recalling all the things that had happened? And it wasn't just the death and the crucifixion that marked their memory. It was also, as they shared with Jesus, who they didn't recognize, they described how they knew. They had heard that the tomb was empty. They had heard that the women had encountered angels saying, He is not dead, but alive. But Luke tells us, when Jesus asked them a question, they stood there looking sad, looking sad, and they were still. They stopped moving. They were stuck in the place of grief and confusion even though they were the ones who had heard Jesus was alive. I think that shows us what we know, which is to say that resurrection, as beautiful and as wondrous and as glorious as it is, is challenging. It is hard. It is hard for the scientific mind to grasp. And even more than this, it is hard for the grieving heart to comprehend. This week, the pastors and the churches in this presbytery learned of the death of a dear colleague and a fellow pastor. His name is Jeff Cravel, and he had been for 16 years a pastor of Church of the Pilgrims in Washington, D.C., and ordained as a minister of word and sacrament for 35 years. He was an eminently passionate an energetic and driven pastor. I knew him through roles on committees and not closely as a friend, but deeply respected him. And I know that there were others who were close to him who are deeply grieving this week and this day after he lost his battle to pancreatic cancer only one month of having received a diagnosis. And I've noticed some of my fellow pastors in their social media posts sharing in their posts profane tirades against cancer. Pastors who have said, I know I just preached that death has lost its sting, but I have to say that's not true right now, for death really stings. These are the pastors who, just a few weeks ago, were preaching the empty empty tomb. They have not forgotten resurrection. They are just remembering what it is like to be human, to live and to love and to lose. Just like those disciples on the Emmaus Road who knew the story of the empty tomb, who could tell it well, are standing still in their grief and loss standing there in need of something more than proximity to the story of resurrection, but the reality of it in their flesh and blood experience. And this is where the text pivots. It turns. It turns for the disciples, and I hope and pray that it can turn for us, such that those grieving disciples actually come into the joy of the resurrection. They move from being able to preach it or at least recount it to being reached by it and encountering it for themselves. Christian faith, 
um, theologian Shirley Guthrie, Guthrie wrote, is not primarily faith in the empty tomb or even in the resurrection as such, but in faith of the risen Christ. In other words, we do not have faith in the resurrection as much as we have faith in the risen Lord through whom we have resurrection. The best way I know to describe this, this, this distinction I'm making is to make uh, the following analogies. Those of us who have a husband or a wife are not married to marriage, but married to our spouse. The person who is there when we wake up and when we go to bed and with whom we share the life of everything that comes in between. Those of us who have friends do not delight in the idea of friendship, but in the person and in the people with whom we share it. We do not love parenting. We love our parents. We love our children. We do not celebrate Earth Day as much as we celebrate Earth. We are not fed by the recipe. We are fed by the meal. We do not dance to the notes written on the page, we dance to the music. So in the same way, we do not necessarily worship resurrection. We worship the risen and resurrected Lord. Resurrection is more than just an event. It is the gift of an everlasting relationship with one who gives us that gift. So my desire to preach resurrection is not primarily forgetful, but just perhaps a bit unfocused. Because as the church, we are here, and as a pastor, I am here, and as worshipers, you are here to know more than just resurrection, but Christ himself as risen. We are to mirror those two disciples who pivot from hearing about the empty tomb to seeing the risen Christ and recognizing him with their own eyes. Now, I wish I had a surefire three-step program by which that pivot can become real for us, but there are three things that I see in the text that could help us. One is that, like the disciples, we are invited to keep walking. Jesus saw them and they were stuck in their grief. And with him they walked. They became part of a movement. This is the power of marches and demonstrations that happen not just on the National Mall, but every time we leave home to go to work or go to school. Every time we go outside and move, we just simply walk. Jesus spent a lot of time in his pre- and post-resurrection life walking. I went to a conference recently where they were impressing upon pastors the need to exercise and stay in shape, and, and the, the coach said, if you, if you don't use it, you lose it. Maybe that's true of movement itself, that if we lose our ability to move, we lose the movement of this risen life in us. So we must go where our grief 
takes us. We must go where our joy takes us. We must go where our responsibilities lead us. Following our questions and being sent forth by our answers. We must also go with someone else. But this is not a solitary walk. Looking out among you, I see couples and friends, fathers and parents, and and many of us are sitting with someone with whom we ostensibly can share our journey of faith. But I hope that this is true for each and every one of you, that you have someone here at Westminster or come to know someone here at Westminster or somewhere else in your life with whom you can talk about not just the weather, the caps, the mats, but your faith, that which is holding you still or that which is propelling you forward to learn and listen. Faith is not a solitary journey. You must walk and you must walk with someone or someone's. And lastly, we learn from the disciples that this pivot occurs because they were willing to welcome and be welcoming. They were on their way. It was getting late. And they say, Jesus, no, no, don't go. Stay with us. They thought they were the hosts. But as we see and as we heard, it was in being welcoming that they actually became welcomed. It was in welcoming Christ that he sat and stood among them and took bread and broke it and blessed them. And they realized where they were, with whom they were. In life, we are to welcome as hard as it may be to do so. There's a poet named Rumi who writes about the guest house, that being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, every morning a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Rumi says, welcome and entertain them all. For even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still greet each guest honorably, for that guest may be clearing you out for some new delight. So we will walk, we will walk with others, and we will welcome and find that the Christ who is the host has been with us all along. The Apostle Paul in Scripture preached passionately about resurrection. He said, without resurrection, the proclamation of the church is in vain. But I'm sure that he would agree with me in saying that without a risen Christ, there is no resurrection. There is no resurrection life. It is our preaching and our teaching of him. It is our walking this road and sharing and learning from one another. It is in welcoming life as it comes and becoming guests at his table that he comes alive for us again. And that resurrection becomes real in the midst of our lament. Faith is more than memory. Faith is an encounter. It is relationship. It is trust. So you may forget this sermon, and I may forget preaching it, but may we walk together, may we share this journey together, may we welcome all that life brings us on this journey 
as a means by which we will pivot together and know that Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Amen.